0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Just Dow at the podcast for people starting DAOs. Our guest is having a little bit of a technical difficulty, so he will be back shortly. But I thought I'd get started with the intro in the meantime. Uh, thanks for joining, as always. Uh, my name is Adam Miller, and I am the CEO and co-founder of MyDAO, which provides legal entity solutions for people starting DAOs. Maybe I'll do the MyDAO ad now instead of later, which is just to say that uh, we love talking to not only DAOs and Web3 projects in general about the benefits of legal entities, and in particular a legal entity in the Marshall Islands, but if you're a lawyer or a service provider that's also servicing DAOs and Web3, uh, please reach out because we always have people asking us for introductions to good Web3 lawyers, DAO lawyers, other service providers who can help Uh, DAOs and Web3 with with different things. So um, uh, we'd love to add you to our network of people that we can introduce DAOs and Web3 projects to if they have a need that you can help uh, solve. So please do check us out on myDAO.org. Before I started MyDAO, I did consulting for people starting and operating DAOs. For those of you who are regular uh, listeners or watchers, you know how passionate I am about DAOs and uh, Web3 in general, and just so excited about the opportunity for DAOs to change the way we organize everything on Earth and beyond um, from uh, the way we uh, do organizations, uh, governments, everything in between. Uh, Really exciting. I'm going to an event, by the way, in a few weeks in Prospera, which is a new kind of network state-like city, kind of a modern crypto city uh, in Honduras in the Caribbean. It's an island off the coast of Honduras uh, called Zoatan I believe. And if you're interested in that, just Google crypto futures and legal engineering summit. So it's going to be all about legal engineering, you know, writing laws, writing regulations, uh, legal issues for DAOs and Web3. And I uh, would love to see some of you there if you are interested. So On this week's episode, once he gets back from his uh, restarting of his computer, we're going to have a man named Pablo, and Pablo is the founder of Moondao, so you'll hear a lot more about it later, but uh, Moondao has already sent, it's a DAO, they've sent people into space, and they're planning, and my understanding is they're planning on colonizing the moon. Uh, So that the moon is not colonized only by private companies and existing nation states. So instead of the moon being owned by the United States, Russia and SpaceX or something like that, um, hopefully we can have a DAO governing the moon or or much of it. And I think that's a really awesome mission. Moon DAO is a Marshall Islands uh, DAO LLC. So obviously we we love um, supporting DAOs that are Marshall Islands uh, registered. Um, As always, we're going to start the show with the Just Dow at News Report, where we go through several recent articles and tweets uh, that we think are relevant for people starting and operating DAOs. And Pablo and I will share our reactions to these stories. So what do we agree with, disagree with? What do we think is relevant for people um, who are uh, starting DAOs about all these different stories? So... I'm going to jump right into the first story of the week while we wait for Pablo so we don't keep all of our uh, listeners waiting and briefly just going to check the uh, telegram chat in case there's any word. Nope. All right. So let's dive right into the Just Out News Report. And once Pablo gets back, we'll get him uh, doing a brief intro and then we'll get him commenting on these stories as well. Um, The first story of the week is from actually a, a biopharma uh, a press release site. It's called BioPharma Dive. I love when we see stories about DAOs coming from outside of the kind of Web three native uh, ecosystem. And uh, this one is an announcement uh, announcing a uh, Pfizer backed DAO launches community funded biotech firm. The biotech firm aims to revolutionize treatments for cancer and aging related diseases, leveraging research into naked mole rats. Uh, so this is about a dao called Vita Dao, it's similar to Moon DAO, Again, who you'll meet, uh, Pablo from Moon Dao soon. Uh, Vita Dao is a dao that is achieving real success. Um, they raise money uh, not only from uh, their members, but also from uh, Pfizer. So, Pfizer, I believe, made a grant, uh, possibly in exchange for some governance rights. And now the Dow is working on uh, spinning out uh, biotech companies uh, to, that, that, that are achieving, you know, trying to achieve things that perhaps would not have been achieved if not for Vita Dow. Uh, so, Vita DAO is focused on uh, longevity, longevity research. So, this company. Uh, Matrix Biosciences uh, is going to work on uh, vitality and longevity research. So trying to help people live longer and eventually live forever. Um, So really exciting again to see uh, VitaDAO having some success. Uh, DAOs like this are also good DAOs to check out if you're new to the world of DAOs. Um, uh, because they're they're already fairly established, and so if you're thinking about hey, how do I start my own DAO and what are some of the challenges I might run into, and, and what are some ways people are already solving those challenges, you know, checking out a DAO like Vita DAO can be a good choice. So, just gonna check in um, on Pablo real quick again, see if he's close. And meanwhile, I will turn to. The second uh, news story of the week. This is a really interesting one. Uh, so this article is from Coin Telegraph, and the headline is Barnbridge Dow votes to comply with SEC order. The voting ended with a unanimous decision to comply with the SEC's potential demands and pay fines if necessary. So the voting ended just a few days ago. And I think there's uh, two interesting things uh, going on here. So uh, the first is that the SEC uh, has announced that it may be going after this DAO called uh, 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 Barnbridge. And I won't get too much into uh, what they're accused of. Here's Pablo. Let me
1: grab him uh, up on the stage here. Hey, Pablo. Hey, how's it going? Sorry about that. uh... I'm good. I had to restart my, uh, my computer and then switch over to the laptop, uh, kind of like uh, switch <laughs> my other way. <laughs> yeah.
0: That's, that's the world we live in. Um, I'm glad you made it. So, uh, I was just, I just shared the first uh, news story of the week, but let's just take one step back and Pablo, why don't you tell the audience just a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your background and in particular, what makes you an authority on DAOs? And then we'll jump
1: back into the uh, news, news segment. Sure. Um, yeah, so I've been, I've been involved in DAO since, um, late 2020. Um, and yeah, I've, I've been a part of a, of a few, uh, DAO movements, I suppose. So, uh, probably the one that, uh, people have heard of the most is Constitution DAO, um, where, uh, it was about, uh, within one week, we, uh, raised nearly $50 million to buy a copy of the U S constitution from Sotheby's, um, And then I uh, founded another DAO called MoonDAO, which was an internet movement to send someone to space. So we raised uh, about 2,600 ETH to send uh, someone to space and we were able to buy two tickets to uh, send someone to suborbit with uh, Blue Origin. So um, yeah, I've been around the block with DAOs a little bit and yeah. Nice. No. Fantastic. Yeah. And and I,
0: I told the audience and t- tell me if this is right, that uh one of or part of Moondao's mission is to make sure that the moon is not colonized only by SpaceX and the United States and Russia or whoever the major actors will be, but that we have some kind of decentralized governance over what is sure to be a, a massive part of human life in the future, the moon.
1: Yeah, totally. Um I think the the moon should be owned by the internet. Um, it, it, makes sense. Uh, most, so I think that, uh, most countries in the world don't have a space program and, um, most people, uh, it doesn't matter what nation you're from or, or what part of the world you're from, um, are incredibly inspired by this sort of next step that we're taking to become multiplanetary. So, um, I think we should take everyone for the ride. Um, it doesn't matter what country you're from, uh, you should be able to get involved in the conversation and the engineering and um, becoming multiplanetary. Um, it shouldn't just be monopolized by one country.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And meanwhile, we'll send people into space, which is is very cool. Um, so I, I uh, shared the first story of the week uh, just uh, before you got here, but let's dive into the second story. And, Pablo, what I'll look uh, from you and from me is to kind of uh, pick apart these stories uh, for people who are starting DAOs today. What's relevant? What they can? What can they learn from these stories, etc. So the second story that I was just getting into, I'll I'll read the headline again. Uh, This is from Cointelegraph. And the headline is, Barnbridge Dow votes to comply with SEC order. The voting ended with a unanimous decision to comply with the SEC's potential demands and pay fines if necessary. So not wanting to get too much into the uh, specifics of the SEC case, unless you would like to. Um, I think what's really interesting here is, You know, often people ask us at MyDAO. So let's say they're setting up a, a legal entity for their DAO and they're wondering, like, well, what if a government agency or a court says that we have to pay a fine? Uh, and we and we disagree. Does having this legal entity put us at greater risk? Like, does it somehow centralize us or allow the government to force us to give up our money? And and interestingly, the answer is, is kind of no, because if, if the DAO controls its money on chain, so if, if you really need a vote of the DAO to spend money from the DAO's treasury, like cryptographically, then it doesn't matter if the FBI says, send us your money, the DAO has to vote to approve the sending of the money. Now, I think in most cases, a DAO probably will approve these things because I think most DAOs are, are trying to be good law-abiding citizens. They're not trying to live outside the scope of the law. But, but I think it actually gives DAOs comfort that for the money you're actually holding on chain, You know, may, maybe this is a given to people who are familiar with crypto, no government can force you to give up your money. You have to vote to approve the, the transaction just like any other. So I think that's cool. Now, it can be a little bit different. Let's say a DAO has a, a multi-sig or even a person holding their money, um, then of course, all the FBI has to do is get that those multi-sig signers or the one person to agree to send the money, even if they don't have the DAO's permission. But this is where, you know, I think one of the really important things for people to think about when they're joining a DAO is how is the money actually controlled, right? Is it direct cryptographic voting on chain from the whole DAO? Is there a multi-sig or where is the money sitting? Um, What do you think about this, Pablo?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, I think my my first impression of, you know, stuff like this is like, I I feel a little bit sad that there does exist like a bit of an adversarial relationship between um, the SEC and DAOs in general, because I think that there's just a lot of good that is coming from these organizations. Um, And um, I liked how uh, Eric Voorhees um, spoke about this. Uh, He recently had this big speech that... uh, people should look it up, it's great, but that a lot of the markets that are being created through DAOs and smart contracts are much more ordered, um, they actually have uh, much more consistent enforcement of rules, um, and um, I think viewed through that lens, um, you know, a lot of these DAOs uh, actually have much stronger enforcement on chain than any government could ever aspire to, mm. so. It's a good point. So, I mean, one of the
0: things that's valuable about Web3 in general is we can create markets with rules that cannot be broken, right? And so it is interesting when you have, like, let's say we're talking about a DeFi protocol that, you know, consenting adults are deciding to use and it has its rules enshrined in code in advance. And SEC is coming in and saying, well, this is too risky. It's you know, it just goes against our rules. So we're gonna gonna try to stop you from doing it. Well, the SEC's job is partly supposed to be to protect investors. What is better protection than having rules enforced by code on a blockchain that you would agree to in advance and then are automatically enforced? So there is something kind of ironic about how the SEC and other institutions are trying to kind of protect us from ourselves when the whole point of what we're doing is to create systems that
1: people can't break the rules in the first place exactly yeah it's it, it's kind of funny you know if you if you phrase it like that it's like we're we're trying to become we're trying to become better arbiters of the truth and better arbit, like and have better enforcement on chain than any of these institutions um but this sort of um almost like uh like paternalistic view of the government to um approve of uh, what yeah consenting adults want to do is is uh i don't know it, it feels like they're kind of treating um the the constituents like children um yeah yeah
0: now it may be worth mentioning in this case this dow was actually creating a a token which is a financial i think easily to argue it's a financial product it was a way of getting exposure to different tokens so a lot of the cases that we see are the sec or other regulators going after DAOs that are offering a securities product. So, right or wrong, the risk I think is not as high if you're a DAO that's either sending people into space or saving the Amazon, um, because you're not your product is not a financial product. But nonetheless, I think we all know that there's a lot of risks uh, from regulators
1: today. Yeah, I think that um, the the real value, and I think this is something that the whole entire ecosystem could do better is in explaining some of these, um, like the stuff that is in a smart contract is great because it's transparent and anyone can see exactly what the rules are on chain. Uh, however, it, it is more intelligible to developers. Um, so I'm, I'm a developer, it makes sense to me, I'm looking at this, this makes more sense than any law ever could, um, but you know, your average person my, they're, they're, that interpretability of the of contracts, I think that sort of user interface um, is sort of catching up to the, the Solidity developers. So,
0: yeah. Yep, totally. All right. The next article of the week is from a website called DL News. And the headline is, doxing allegations surrounding $35 million optimism grant spark sparks DAO debate. The dust-up may test the definition of what constitutes doxing, the controversial proposal royals the optimism community." All right, and I'll just read a little bit more. The Decentralized Autonomous Organization Governing the Optimism Blockchain, also known as the Token House, is proposing to suspend a grant recipient based on allegations of intentional doxing. So this story is a little bit convoluted and there's some drama, I think, going on and I'll share uh, what's happening here, but I think there's also a, a higher level issue we can discuss related to it. So at play here is one DAO member doxing another DAO member, which means basically giving the internet their personal information, name, possibly address. I'm not sure exactly what was shared here, phone number. Um, And uh, in this DAO, supposedly someone dox someone else. And then the DAO is saying, you shouldn't have done that. So we might take away your your grant money or or no longer give you a grant. Um, There's a bigger question here that the DAO is discussing, which is kind of overall, what type of doxing level is appropriate? And so, for example, should leaders who are elected, uh, and I know people think about DAOs differently, uh, I, I always like to say like DAOs might not have management, although they can, but they do have leaders, right? Every group of people has has people who are setting the tone, who are driving change, who are uh, helping uh, communicate the mission and vision and keeping people motivated towards that vision. You don't have to be in charge to do that, right? There's there's leaders at all levels, but you could also have management. You could have some kind of committee or it could be a facilitation committee, a management committee. Um, it could be just a team and in all these cases, there's a question of well, should some teams have to dox themselves? Um, and you know, in some situ- I think it's it's clearly going to be case by case, right? But in some situations, I can see why a community member might say, look, if I'm going to buy into the project, if I'm going to let's say buy some tokens and put my money on the table, you know, I'd like to know that this particular team, the governance team, or the legal team, or whatever it is, I'd like to know that they've shared their real names with the community so that uh we can hold them accountable uh if only socially right just knowing that if they did something wrong it would fall you know the the blame would go back to their name um so that makes a lot of sense at the same time there is this kind of principle in crypto in general it's really cool that for the first time in in human history you can have people uh, working with each other on a global scale and remain anonymous. And that is really cool. And so I, I guess to me, it's just more case by case basis. Each DAO should probably make its own decisions about who should be doxed and who, who shouldn't or who doesn't have to. Um, I think it's, it's an interesting thing for people to think about. What do you think, Pablo?
1: Yeah, this one's actually a tough one um, for me to grapple with sometimes. It, like, I, I understand why some of the founding fathers use pseudonyms, you know, or, um, you know, people that are discussing dangerous ideas politically or, or things that uh, might go against the, the grain um, of the political consensus at the time. Um, and throughout history, I mean, if you look back, there have been tons of times where the crowd is wrong. in one way or another Mm -hmm. and um they maybe people don't want to be burned at the stake for the ideas that they have and so i think having the ability to remain synonymous is is really important especially in in a space like ours where um you know some some really big and powerful ideas are being discussed um but that being said um i've chosen to use my real name um and the reason behind that is I'd like to um, basically stake my reputation. Um, and like, I like, you don't know who you're dealing with online a lot of the time. So um, I think it's really powerful to just like show your face and say, Hey, um, I believe in this stuff and I, I don't see anything wrong with what we're doing. And mm-hmm. uh, you know I think that gives a lot of legitimacy to the space where it's like, um, I'm, me and and a a bunch of other people like like you adam are willing to put ourselves out there and say and it's not like um it's not like we have anything to gain like (laughs) for having our real names out there um not trying to get famous or something you know like that it's like uh well actually i i just think that um i want to discuss this stuff out in the open and i think it's also valuable so i think it's up to the individuals to figure out which path is right for them but I think that we we do need to preserve the ability for people to discuss things without having their, their own, um, like without, without getting politically, uh, burned at the stake or,
0: you know. yeah. Well, right. So like cancel culture, I don't know if that's a controversial term in and of itself, but that's certainly a risk, right. That when you, uh, say what you believe with your name behind it. There is always a risk that there could be I guess, some social cost associated with that. You know, I've been willing to say more than I would have in the past on Web three social, um, like Farcaster. I'm a big, big fan of Farcaster, which is a Web three social platform, and. When this Israel Palestinian conflict broke out, um, I I posted on it and I I even hosted like the equivalent of Twitter spaces, which is called an Abura space on Farcaster to discuss the issues. And I never would have done that on Twitter or X because I would have worried more that my account could be at risk. Like, and I, I don't have, like, my views are very moderate, although I guess these days being moderate can seem extreme to people at times but um i still worry that i'll say the wrong thing and upset the wrong people or in three years there will be a different owner of x and that owner will be like the opposite of me and now they're going to come after my account and so i feel more comfortable saying things on farcaster now that doesn't protect me from the potential social cost if people decide they want to cancel me in in general but you can't take away my account at least my farcaster account right you can't stop me from posting
1: Totally. Yeah. No, I think there, there's something really powerful about that. Like being able to actually own your audience to some degree and to know that you're not just going to be, you know, removed at random. I mean, we saw that a ton um, before Elon and, you know, but it's 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 like I think something that's worth discussing here, too, is the like political involvement in some of these social media uh, companies. Like uh, the stuff with the Twitter files was really eye opening and um, mm-hmm. It's wild to see some yeah. of the kind of uh, coercion behind the scenes uh, that's occurring, or sort of like that backdoor access uh, where um, certain groups can say, "Hey, silence this person." Uh, yeah, know what saying so.
0: Yeah, yeah. I I think it's a really tough one because I I, I mean I tend to be very much pro free speech, right? I, I don't th- the government at least should not be censoring people. Uh, for what they say, right, no matter what, because I think the, the risk is, is much larger letting the most powerful entity in any region or in the world who has a monopoly on violence, you know, state-sponsored violence, to let them silence people is much more dangerous than, for example, X being allowed to silence people. Um, and uh, even in terms of what I like to build and support, I very much prefer a world of free speech because I feel like I want to know what everyone thinks. And if people really think in like violent and destruct, destructful, is that a word destruct? What am I trying to say? Um, destructive, if people think in destructive ways, <laughs> I guess in crypto, you can you can do that kind of thing, right? Like good, good, full or, or disruptful. But um, I, I want to see that. And I don't want it to be sense. It might make me really mad and upset and sad and depressed even. But like, I think it's really important that we know what people actually think. So so I I tend to to lean to that side, but I can also see the damage that can be done when entire like kind of social movements emerge around something that is false or damaging or, you know, like like anti science. I'm very pro science. I think we should generally do what the data says makes sense when it comes to medical issues or other things. But at the same time, I have trouble, you know, thinking we should censor anyone. Uh, I don't know. Where do you fall on, on that issue?
1: yeah it's well it's tough i mean um yeah if we look at like COVID, for example like there are a bunch of things that uh, we got wrong as like a society and uh there there were people on the fringes that were kind of warning and saying hey yeah uh maybe this isn't so right um and a lot of those people were silenced and so i think you always want to maintain the ability for that sort of like counter narrative or counterculture to exist and even if um like the there's sort of like this um, this weird effect where if you try to silence or push one group away um, from a certain narrative, it doesn't make that it doesn't make that go away. It, it actually yeah. empowers them um, because it, it all of a sudden it sort of reinforces those ideas. Like, mm-hmm. oh, why am I being silenced for this idea? And so it kind of just backfires, anyway. So. Yeah. At the end of the day, I don't think you can just, you know, silence someone um, or silence an idea. Um, I think you just need to have it uh, exist in this free marketplace of ideas and debate other ideas. And through this, like, conversation and reasoning, um, usually the right stuff floats up to the top. So I actually really like community notes, for example. I think, you know, that is a very interesting way of – know highlighting what is misinformation and i mean it's already been super powerful um it's Hmm. the like israel palestine stuff it's it's very interesting to see like the content that's coming out of that and then community notes in real time checking that and investigating it's uh, i mean it's wild to exist in this sort of medium where you can have um citizen journalism happening in real time and you, you can actually see a war develop in real time um it's like scary it's shocking but also like <laughs> yeah i'd rather have that than a few uh mainstream sort of um i don't know big uh big news outlets just like dictating what the narrative is so
0: yeah yeah are you very familiar with how this community notes feature on twitter
1: works because
0: i i can't I, i've seen it but i can't say mm-hmm. i'm really very familiar with it
1: so the way I understand it is that it, it tries to figure out people that are typically on opposite ends of an issue. Um, and then depending, like, and you can kind of uh, rate notes and whether or not they they're correct or not correct. And then it, it basically matches if, if two people that are typically on the opposite end of an issue. And This is just what I understand. I actually don't know mm-hmm. behind the scenes how it works. I wonder if the, the actual like, code behind it is open source, that would be really interesting. Um, I know yeah. you open source, the, the algorithm, um,
0: mm-hmm. so that's, that's really nice. Um, yeah. 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 I, I was just Googling it and even Vitalik, uh, seems to have written an article about how the community notes algorithm works. So that, that makes me initially feel very, fairly trusting towards it. Um, but it makes sense. I mean, you know, it's, if you're trying to fight, if you're like people on both sides often are trying to find truth, Right. And I guess that's that's what our belief has to be for this type of – to believe this type of system will work is that more people are trying to find truth than not. And then let's go disagree about our opinions on what to do about the truth. But if we don't have any shared truth, how do you ever make progress? So, um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense that if you, if you could find people from both sides who say – uh, this is actually a, like a screen capture from a video game, not a video from Gaza. <laughs> like that's that's going to help all of us, you know, find a solution. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's really interesting. All right, let's turn to the next article of the week. And actually this one is going to be related to the uh, conflict and crisis in the Middle East. And this is from uh, Coindesk from Consensus Magazine, which is on Coindesk. And the headline is, Hamas has raised millions in crypto donations, Wall Street Journal reports, but the amount is likely small compared to the volume raised in state-sponsored support. So I guess this is coming from the Wall Street Journal initially. Now, at first, I my thought was... Oh, this is annoying. I mean, I'm sure Israel's also raising money from crypto and like they're they're trying to make like take the the people that everyone generally hates the most in that moment. This was like right after the attack, so they they were like mostly the bad guys in that moment at least and um, and, and the Wall Street Journal is coming out with a clickbaity headline, it sounds like, saying, Look, Hamas is raising money on crypto. Look, look how bad crypto is. So I just did a quick Google search for Israel crypto donation. And there's the same thing for Israel that they, they, they didn't even mention in this article. This, I think it's called Crypto Aid Israel, and you could donate crypto to israel um but then the next day actually i heard from someone else that there's even more nuance to it that's more even more relevant which is there's actually uh, evidence of hamas months ago saying stop donating crypto to us because it's too easy for authorities to track so don't donate this way just find other ways to donate and so even like the, the militant, terrorist, whatever organization said, it's like crypto is not a good way to, to, to hide money. So don't send us money on crypto. And yet, unfortunately, this news came out, you know, basically bad-mouthing crypto for the fact that it's being used by organizations like this. So um, I love that I learned about this nuance because I, I think it actually is it, fairly accurate. You know, it, it's actually a lot. It's, it's, it's there's a, a, a parallel to what we tell people in the like legal and regulatory world, um, let's say I'm talking to another government uh, outside the Marshall Islands that's thinking about doing something similar, and they say, "Well, how do you get over the hurdle that people are afraid of DAOs using crypto because it could be used for money laundering and terrorist financing and other criminal activity?" And the answer actually is, is is quite to the contrary. First of all, think about a think about a traditional company, so like a normal corporation that's registered anywhere, Marshall Islands, Delaware, doesn't matter. Once they register, that government of Delaware or the Marshall Islands or Cayman Islands or whatever has exactly zero visibility into what that organization does with its money. Zero. Whether it's cash, whether it's bank accounts, whether it's crypto, you have zero idea. On the flip side, if you have a DAO that registers and tells the government, here's our smart contract that's governing our organization, that's holding our money, now the government can track every single transaction that the DAO engages in, even it can see who the members are and track every single one of their transactions. Now, whether that's good or not for crypto and for the world in the long run is a separate issue, but actually there's way more transparency with crypto than there is with traditional money and digital money. Um, so, I mean, now, unfortunately, I've got to make this argument about 100 times before it starts to stick. And, and still people are afraid. Um, uh, but but it is interesting that both Hamas and I agree that actually crypto is not a great way to commit a crime.
1: Totally. Yeah. Like I've, I've heard it multiple times that law enforcement actually likes when um, people are using crypto because they can see every single inflow and outflow. I mean, I think that um, our work is not completed until every government and every nonprofit are operating using these tools. Um, And like, you, you can see every single transaction in and out of that treasury. And if you are, you know, donating money or you are paying taxes, you should have a right to see what is happening with that money. And right now, you just don't. Um, so that's kind of like a black box. And so it's weird yeah, to me that, um, people see sort of crypto as this, um, you know, Oh, way to hide your money and all that. It's like, well, it, yeah, maybe it's easier. It's easier to steal the money. <laughs> like, you know, like you were saying before it's easier for it's, it's more difficult for someone to just press a button and, and, uh, you know, freeze your bank account. However. Uh, when it comes to auditability and to see actually what's happening with that money, yeah, it's unbeatable. There's nothing like it.
0: It's a good point. And it goes hand in hand with guaranteed compliance of any rules written on chain. Um, even, put compliance aside, just having transparency is, is very similar in, it, in its value unless there, there's a completely anonymous system because no one's going to like any nonprofit that wants to say, again, let's just say save the rainforest and uh, people are giving them money and then that money is going to, you know, fund terrorists, whatever, they're they're not going to give money anymore. So um, it's almost, you know, kind of like a natural uh, compliance tool. Um, Yeah. Very, very, and I think especially nonprofits, right. To your point in taxes, maybe private companies are going to want to use ZK, uh technology to keep their transactions safe or things like tornado cash right other mixers i think there is a use case for um keeping your financial transactions private even if you just don't want people to know what nft you you bought last week you know whatever that's fine but especially for nonprofits to be able to see where that money is going we talked about this actually on last week's show that the news is coming out about like even like like uh, BLM, Black Lives Matter, you know, organizations in the US, everything from like, there are so many organizations with BLM in their name that uh, big companies like Apple and trying to remember others donated money to BLMs that aren't even related to like Black Lives Matters by accident because they were in such a hurry to try to do good. Um, but they just gave money to the wrong organization. And then you had some organizations where now you see the founders are living in these like huge houses and that's fine. I don't have any problem with like if someone did great work, you can reward them. But the people donating money had no idea that this money was spent, you know, making the... The founders and, and organizers wealthy as opposed to actually helping you know solve real problems um so transparency is going to be going to
1: be nice totally yeah and that story is just all too common it's like yeah maybe even more the norm yeah good point good point All right, the
0: last story of the week, and then we will dive into a deeper interview with Pablo. Um, The last story is actually a tweet from Idris, I-D-R-I-S-S underscore X-Y-Z, announcing meta-infinite public goods funding round powered by Optimism FND, which is the Optimism Foundation. We're consolidating all the major uh, public goods funding mechanisms, PGF, public good funding mechanisms from Gitcoin, Giveth, Uh, A few Dow drops, retro PGF, uh, a couple other uh, uh, Twitter handles here and enabling perpetual donations to grantees directly from Twitter. Model adapted from Awaki, which is Kevin Awaki. And uh, I'll just read one more of their tweets. Why a MetaRound? Donors are interested in supporting their favorite projects regardless of whether these projects are part of a specific funding cycle by involving grantees from diverse public good funding sources we aim to foster cross-pollination and collaboration okay so a lot of like buzzwords and twitter handles and other words that may be new to people so obviously google them look up this tweet we'll have it in the show notes um just highlight a couple things here uh basically This organization, uh, IDris or IDris—I hope I'm pronouncing it Um, right—they're building web tools that make it easier to support your favorite uh, causes on chain. So, like these Web3 projects. I don't know if has MoonDAO ever done like a Gitcoin grant or anything.
1: Or we have actually, yeah.
0: Awesome, awesome, very cool. So you know all these organizations that are really helping fund uh, really good Web3 projects, Um, but. It's a little bit hard sometimes if you want to make sure you're always supporting Moondao, for example, it looks like there's like six or seven different uh, grant projects that you have to visit on a regular basis to vote again or donate again to keep supporting them. And so this company Idris or this project built a tool that makes it easier to make sure that you are supporting the projects you love on all these platforms on an ongoing basis. So there's a cool uh, chart. If you look up the tweet showing different organizations and arrows and stuff in terms of where they're helping money go and it all ends up at, at public goods, uh, which is cool. So any
1: thoughts on this Pablo? Um, yeah. I mean, I, 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 like the whole public goods are good. You know, it's like one of these things that is just uh yeah, like we want to send money to open source projects that are just doing great things and people should be able to, um, give directly to, to those projects. And, um, yeah, I think all the, like generally just all the experiments that are happening with public goods and regenerative finance, all that stuff is really interesting. Um, yeah, I great. like that people are like playing around with new incentive models and new, new stuff. Um, and you know, I feel like, uh, we're just going to Keep iterating on this and see what works, what doesn't work. And I love like seeing how quickly um, organizations like Gitcoin have iterated, taken in feedback, mm-hmm. and or just yeah, like yeah. doing some really cool stuff. Um, yeah, and yeah, I, I'm I'm here for it. Yeah, yeah,
0: that's awesome. And by the way, the relevance to DAOs is is first of all uh, this organization IDris is community owned and operated, uh, and a lot of the recipients of the uh, grant uh, making. Uh, goes to DAOs of various kinds. Uh, And uh, finally, I guess just the cool Web3 angle is, you know, if you had, uh, let's say we're talking about six traditional grant-making charities, nonprofits, whatever, and you wanted to always get grants from all of them you're definitely going to have to always go pitch all of them on a regular basis there's no actually a common app would be a good idea i don't know if anyone's doing that but i don't know if there's there's no way to like combine them all into one composed you know system but because all of this in web3 is happening on chain i imagine that's what makes it possible to build a tool like this is that everything's happening out in the open on open source software on blockchain protocols and so you can take six and eventually hundreds of organizations that are trying to do great work and compose it all into this one better user interface in a way that just was never possible before web3
1: totally yeah that's something that uh i feel like isn't highlighted enough is just the ability to compose on other people's um Hmm. smart contracts like the majority of like what MoonDAO has done has been built on top of other people's smart contracts and it's actually the smart thing to do because um, the ones that have already existed for a while have been battle tested. So it's like the, the more use each of these contracts get, the more anti-fragile they become, the more other people can use it, the more other people can compose on top of it. So it's like we all get stronger together. It's a yeah. really awesome feature.
0: It is. Well, can you give an example of uh, smart contracts that you
1: have, have reused yeah totally uh so we use a staking contract at, at Mundo and uh we actually uh so we forked it from uh, nation three who forked it from curve <laughs> and so it's oh, kind wow. of like this uh, uh a bunch of different uh, forks and little tweaks and you know nation three tweaked it slightly we t- tweaked it slightly too um but yeah it's uh it's cool that just like an idea that was birthed from one DAO can just you know propagate all the way to, to us so That's awesome. Love it.
0: All right, let's turn to let's turn away from the just out news report and onto our featured guest interview with Pablo. Um, I'm going to skip the MyDAO ad because I did it earlier um, uh, while we were waiting for your computer to restart. Uh, So let's just go right into it. So uh, Pablo, um, uh, let's just take one step back first. And would you tell us how you got into Web3 and
1: DAOs in the first place? Yeah. Um, So I was working at Google um, as a software engineer. And um, this was during the pandemic. Um, I I became kind of uh, very enthralled with this idea of of, uh, community libraries. So uh, how could you get uh, people to share resources? You know, we're all locked down. And um, you know, what what was kind of like an an efficient way of, of doing that? And um, then I, I started kind of getting interested in smart contracts because it seemed like a way that people can kind of self-organize and do it without any sort of middleman. You can kind of escrow and, and create a library in a sort of distributed way. And so it, it really started from like a um, a problem first and then it seemed like smart contracts were actually the the correct solution. And then, and, yeah. and from there, like a whole world opened up where I started to... You know, investigate and learn more about daos and uh, you know at the time i was working at google like the the biggest you know <laughs> uh quote unquote you know centralized uh, tech yeah. company and um you know i i think uh it's like i think we're evolving as a human species uh to use the tools of the internet in a way that makes sense and um, I think we've already had a bunch of, um, experiments with like in, in, power. Um, and, uh, you know, we've, we've identified democracy as a pretty solid solution to dealing with sort of, uh, containing that power and making sure that, that power is always uh, responsive to, um, the individuals, uh, that, that, that are, are, are being subject to that power. Um, and we're, we've been kind of moving into a world where uh, networks are having more power even than nations. Um, so mm. a lot of these uh, companies are, are much more powerful than um, a lot of nations around the world. And so I think it's kind of imperative that we figure out how to um, make sure that those companies are... are, are kind of in check with the rest of the world <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh we we don't end up with uh, some sort of you know tyrannical um powers <laughs> and this is yeah. especially mm. so like if, if you look at the trajectory of ai and how you know um powerful that's become i think it's kind of we're getting uh too uh major revolutions in technology happening at the same time. You have AI, which mm. is sort of the centralizing force where you require massive data sets mm. to train this intelligence. And then we're getting crypto, which is this way of kind of like, um, of giving power to individuals and making sure that they can, uh, retain that power, that they have, um, uh, secrets that only they know that, that make sure that they, they as individuals are protected, um, in, within a, a system. And so, yeah, I mean, those are kind of like the high-level narratives, um, and then that's just kind of like where I, I got really, really interested in sort of how DAOs could take take shape. And I kind of, I mean, it's still a very nascent technology, and I'm just very excited to like, uh, like, help uh, play with it, shape it, see where it grows, see how it goes, and and then, wow. yeah, that's that's basically it. Wow, cool.
0: Um... Oh, you made, brought up so many interesting points. I, 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 for some reason, my mind is sticking on the AI for and wants to ask you a question about that for a second. But why do you say that that's a centralizing force? Um, like these big data sets. I mean, won't they eventually just get leaked, and then everyone can use them, or, or maybe we'll use DAOs to create the biggest decentralized data sets? Or what's
1: what's the factor there that you're thinking about? Well yeah, I, I hope that we, we can use DAOs to kind of create the these largest models in the world. But it's not it's not only the data. I mean the data is very it takes a ton of time to, you know, collect those data sets. But yeah, of course you, you can open source them. But the the central issue is the compute. So the compute mm-hmm. is very, very expensive and um, you it requires millions and millions of dollars to create these like massive clusters um that people mm-hmm. run to, to train these foundational models so um yeah so there are only a few kind of labs and companies that can afford all of that and that are really on the bleeding edge of this so hmm. yeah.
0: interesting you know uh, my uh friend who's a senator in the marshall islands um that we work with on on my uh recently brought up kind of data centers for AI or compute centers for AI as another thing that they might want to think about. How can a sovereign nation help develop the future of data centers and compute for AI in a way that might be better for the world somehow? So I'm not sure exactly what the solution is, but I wonder if there's a way for a nation state to be, to provide something that's more fair or more decentralized or less, less risky than, relying on Amazon or Google or these new
1: AI compute startups? Yeah, I think something really interesting um, is that when it comes to crypto, the hardware that we're using is the same thing that uh, they're using for AI, Hmm. GPUs. And so um, when people are mining crypto, um, what if uh, some of that uh, compute power was used also to train a model um, rather than kind of solve this one-way problem? um, for encryption. Um, I don't know. Like I have heard some people like thinking about that stuff and working on that, but it seems like a pretty, like, the, there's some probably something really interesting there. Like you have all this, yeah. computer, all these people working on, on problems all day. Well, maybe they should be training these, uh, these models. Yeah. I also like.
0: find it, it's kind of philosophical, but it's interesting that the particular technology, these GPUs, that have become so valuable in both crypto, like cryptography and blockchain, et cetera, and AI are also the chips that were originally built just to create visual representations of the real world. Basically virtual representations of the real world, right? And so there's something about crypto and AI that's very natural. Right, but you mentioned evolution earlier. Maybe, maybe it really is evolution of life of intelligence on Earth is happening partly through GPUs and this these technologies.
1: Yeah, I mean, we, we could go real far out there. I mean, I think, <laughs> That's true. I think to like to some extent, um, we're kind of like birthing a a, a new entity, and this is mm-hmm. like a it's silicon based rather than uh, carbon-based. But it displays a lot of uh, characteristics of a living organism. Um, And it's pretty wild. Um, Yeah. Uh, Who knows where all this goes? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, All right. Well, (laughs) I'll
0: I'll take us back. (laughs) Yeah. I'll I'll, I'll take us back to Web3 so we don't get too far off track. Um, All right. So... Let's go back to your entry into uh, crypto from Google and thinking about AI and crypto. Um, How did you get from there into DAOs and specifically MoonDAO? Are you a former astronaut or how did this (laughs) go down?
1: Um, Well, yeah. So from, from this idea of like community libraries, um, uh, we decided to turn it into a DAO and we were doing a bunch of explorations into it, but it was kind of happening. In like an isolated way, like it was just me and some friends like tinkering on stuff. Uh, we had a bunch of demos that we'd share with our friends. Uh, I was living in the Mission in San Francisco, and kind of sharing these things and seeing how people were using them. But really, the density for um, crypto wallets wasn't quite there yet. It was like 2020, um, and even, even today, I wouldn't say it's it's necessarily there at the at the level where like um, you could kind of plug this into some place like San Francisco and and like wallets aren't really ubiquitous yet the ui isn't really there but um around that same time uh constitution dao uh just kind of like sprung up on the internet and i got really excited about this idea of like making um like some like a statement that like uh, the crypto network is just as powerful as uh any one of these billionaires that might want to, you know, purchase the U S constitution, which is this like foundational mm-hmm. document. That's like, mm-hmm. um, enshrining the, the like powers of the individual and, uh, mm. just, like massive leap in governance. And I see crypto as being this massive leap in governance, this massive leap in, in organization of, um, of individuals and, and protection of the rights, and so that was really exciting. And then I got involved in that and uh, we did end up losing. <laughs> um, but it also, I think it was like a stress test of uh, some mm. of where the Dow technology was at the time. And uh, we, we saw some of the creaks in there too, like the gas fees were really high. Um, mm-hmm. You're able to see what our max bid was, even though we pushed the max bid far beyond what anyone was anticipating. Like. Mm-hmm. When the constitution was going up for sale, people were estimating something like ten million dollars, maybe max twenty million is what this would go for, which oh, wow. and that was already extremely high. But that's we're thinking that would be the upper limit. But since we were able to raise it up to forty, almost fifty million dollars, um, Ken Griffin, the the CEO of uh, Citadel, a uh, hedge fund, uh, had to put up a lot more money than he was going to. So. <laughs> <laughs> in order to nice. he, you know it, it was like um, like it's kind of like Pokemon battles you've got your rivals you know and like <laughs> he had grown to this level and he beat us that time but hey maybe uh, um, we'll beat him some next time. It's remarkable how, do you do you remember how many people
0: were part of Constitution now?
1: Uh, that's or a good question. Wallets. I don't know if I could tell you off the top of my head um, I, I think it, I feel like we had almost over 10,000 people, but I could be wrong yeah. in that. You'd have to look up on, on Juicebox box mm, um, okay. to be sure. But yeah, from then yeah. I, from there, um, like we had this idea of trying to send someone into space and like um, we we tried to apply the same thing to like, okay, internet movement, like these tickets to go to outer space are super expensive. Um, you know, maybe we can all band together buy, buy a seat. Um, it's pretty funny, actually. Um, Ken Griffin also. Then after we, we bought Blue Origin seats, he also bought uh, a, a Blue Origin seat. Um, really? He donated it, but yeah. Um, it was, <laughs> nice. Uh, I, I feel like we're like tracking each other now. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> That's great. Yeah.
0: Interesting. Okay. And so, what has the journey been uh, with MoonDAO? Where,
1: where did you guys start, and where where are you now? Um yeah, it's been it's been a really interesting journey. So it's almost been two years now. Um and it's evolved a lot since uh its early days. So it started out just going, okay, this is how much one of these seats costs. If we all band together we can buy one and then send, you know, uh, someone from the internet up into space, regular person. Um we actually uh were able to buy two of them and then we decided to um vote with one of the seats and then do random sweepstakes with another one um but in the background of this sort of like um awesome movement to send someone to space is uh what i think is is a really powerful like collective of individuals uh from all over the world that are super interested in space and um we're uh like bringing in all of these this diversity of thought and ideas because crypto is totally international like 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 i i don't think like that is highlighted enough too is that mm. like it's not just the us like it's it's a shared language like people from china are are using this and um people from uh india uh from south america from europe from africa and so um yeah, it's, it's a pretty unique place. I think it's one of the most optimistic corners of the internet. Um, it's a bunch of people that are, you know, tinkering with, uh, uh, you know, like we we get together and we just talk about what can we do to accelerate progress towards lunar settlement. And so a lot of the the funding that, that uh, we raise to send someone into space, that overflow is all being put into open source, you know, public goods that accelerate our progress towards lunar settlement. So um, that's kind of like the uh, I guess the, the amazing side effect of like trying to send someone to space, which is this like flashy, cool thing mm-hmm. It's an everyday person. But then also uh, we have a, a community of nearly 12,000 token holders that uh, uh, can get together, submit proposals uh, to fund different initiatives and things um, that uh, progress this mission of, of like actually having boots on the ground um, on the moon which sounds crazy, but it's also like, this is on the roadmap for every major space agency in the world. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. um, you have this potential container uh, of like a bunch of different cultures and individuals that Mm -hmm. really Mm want to get involved in this, um, that can use this credibly neutral technology to fund and work on some of these problems in a way that's not arbitered by any one nation, but uh, is mm. it's just this neutral medium where people can collaborate and work together. Um, so I think that's that's pretty powerful.
0: Wow. Yeah,
1: it is. And
0: what kinds of things are you funding so far? To help drive towards that mission, is it mostly just like normal Web three public goods because those are where MoonDAO's needs are today, or are there projects that are more directly tied
1: to putting boots on the moon? Yeah, so uh, we we do a bit of both. So we have a lot of uh, projects that are just about like improving the efficiency of the community, making sure things you know um, are are working properly. But then we also work on uh, you know real technical problems towards lunar settlement. And uh, one that I'd really like to highlight because I think it's it's, uh, it's just a really amazing project. Uh, we, we funded um, uh, an individual his name's Phil, Phil Linden, uh, to uh, in, in collaboration with a, a nonprofit called Open Lunar to work on a timing protocol. And uh, so the question the central question around that is what time is it on the moon? which seems kind yeah. of, it's this esoteric, you know, what <laughs> uh, is it, you know, we, we could just say it's UTC, but it's also moving, right? So there, there's all of this, uh, it, it gets kind of trippy when, when you really try to think about uh, time and space. Um, it's it's not so straightforward. Yeah. Um, so, um, and it's also this fundamental piece of coordination that needs to happen. Yeah. Um, So Mm -hmm. to, I guess, uh, give a little bit more context, so if you're a satellite, right, and you're in cislunar space, so you're between the moon and the earth, um, you really need to have a coordinated time with all of the other objects. Um, And that's fundamental for uh, what's called PNT, position, navigation, and timing. Mm -hmm. And all three of those are, are necessary. So uh, what you have here on earth is a terrestrial GPS. So uh, this was actually a, a DARPA funded project came from the, the United States um, uh, military technology uh, to uh, basically figure out where objects are in space. And that was open sourced. So now everyone can use GPS and it's, it's a public good. Um, so all, all of our phones can plug into the GPS, um, you know, at, a million things use it uh, in order to, to locate themselves in, in space. Uh, but this is also a huge undertaking, billions and billions of dollars. It also, you know, billions of dollars to maintain. Um, and it's a lot easier to solve that problem terrestrially than it is in cislunar space, where you have a lot less users of it. Mm. And it's just um, like, uh the the topology of that space is is much more complicated so you might have things uh around the surface of the moon you might have stuff that's in uh what's called some of the lagrange points um which are kind of these like unique Mm -hmm. uh gravity wells that that are located between the earth and the moon um Mm -hmm. and so yeah it's it's a much more difficult problem and so through this uh uh like question of like, what time is it on the Moon, um, we uh, have sort of developed this. Uh, and, and actually, the, the funny thing is that we we applied to DARPA with this with this proposal, um, mm-hmm. because DARPA released this 10 uh, year architecture program uh, to create lunar infrastructure and Moondao put together a proposal for it, which is kind of an alternative nice. to a centralized version of doing GPS to try to do a decentralized version. And it's it's quite interesting because uh, if you have a bunch of nodes, so if every satellite had an atomic clock mm-hmm. and there are all these, uh, it, like there are um, open source time card, it's, it's, there's a project called the Open Source Time Card Project. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, it's an open source uh, timekeeping uh, uh, hardware. So you have an atomic okay. clock and software for synchronization between these atomic clocks, and so uh, the the project itself is trying to uh, decentralize uh, PNT so that any any satellite can take one of these time cards, and then basically um, communicate with other satellites um, and determine where their location is in in space, but. It, it goes beyond just PNT. It also, uh, this has major implications for communications technology, because once you have a network uh, of all of these satellites that are relaying information, because PNT, all it is really is is communication. You're just, mm-hmm. you're constantly emitting what time it is and your position, um, you know, in, in space. And so- um, So you um, can
0: send other data too, right?
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so uh, the, the fundamental thing here is that um, similar to like an app store. So if you have uh, like a duopoly between Android and Apple, um, everything that's built on top of that app store has to be kind of uh, within the bounds of that, those, those kind of centralized players. Mm-hmm. So I think we're looking at a potential kind of app store problem when it comes to space where you have the U.S. that's developing oh. a bunch of infrastructure independent from China that's in, developing a bunch of infras- infrastructure, and they're not necessarily interoperable. They're not necessarily working together. And both of them have massive infrastructure costs. So it's it's going to be um, like very difficult for just oh. like smaller players to get involved. But if you can, uh, at the most fundamental layer, which is the information layer and communications layer, develop uh, protocols where uh, individual satellites uh, really have uh, control over their their position, navigation and timing, then you can start to develop communications protocols on top of that. And then also just and that that allows for decentralized applications to thrive uh, that might not uh, necessarily be beholden by maybe some of these uh, rules and regulations that uh, U.S., China or, or whoever puts together, you can create a neutral medium a credibly neutral medium uh, that other that anyone in the world can build on top of. So uh, I wow. think this is exciting. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is very exciting. So these are big problems, um, uh, big, 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 interesting challenges to, to go after. So I feel like for you to achieve your goals as a DAO, you're going to have to be very effective as a DAO. And I'm curious because I get asked this question a lot people say, what does it mean to be effective as a DAO? And well, I usually tell them it depends on your goals, right? And then it sounds like you know what your goals are. So in your case, I mean, how do you create, how do you facilitate MoonDAO being effective at achieving those goals?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I think Right now, DAOs in general are evolving. Um, And uh, right now, the way that most DAOs operate is through kind of like a a relatively cumbersome cumbersome governance layer. So like in order to move funds from like a a main treasury over to a, a project or initiative, you have to go through kind of like this long governance cycle. And so I would probably... Uh, try to frame the question in terms of speed and cycles of that governance and reasoning, um, and there's um, a lot of ways of kind of looking at that. So I'd say the most effective DAOs would be the ones where um, you can go from an idea to uh, the funding and creation, and then sort of like like all of that in a in a short period of time, and and reason about that in a way that you're actually you know getting good results. Um, so not just kind of throwing stuff at the wall or or sort of chaos, but um, yeah. And, and so I think there's really interesting um, new ways of kind of approaching that that are less governance centric. Um, So it's funny because, you know, DAOs kind of have this promise of being this sort of like decentralized technology, but a lot of the architectures that we're seeing right now in DAOs are actually relatively centralized. So like, for example, passing a, proposal that requires a supermajority of the of the token holders in order to pass. Um, yes, the the decision making power is in the hands of a ton of people, um, but it has to go through this like one major governance node, you know, in order for anything to happen. And so I think that um yeah the to me the the like the like DAO should have you know, an overarching mission that they all get aligned on. But the implementation towards that mission should have, like, people should be able to to attack it from different angles and not necessarily need to agree Mm -hmm. on the implementation, you know. Because if you have the entire DAO voting on every single step of, like, how you guys are doing something, it's going to move incredibly slowly. It's just the decision-making is going to be super diluted um, because not everyone's going to have the, the same context inside of it, mm-hmm. so I think that we've, like, we're probably going to find this balance um, over time of like decentralization of power, like where mm-hmm. where it matters, but then um, the ability for people to kind of run with an idea and not be Im- impeded by governance. Um, so I think the most effective DAOs that work towards their goals are going to be the ones that are actually. Use governance less and use protocols more, um, mm. you know, um, mm. and then have have a governance layer. But it, it's a it's a that, that's the operating system. It's a slow layer, but then faster kind of more protocol centric things on top of it. Mm. You know? Do you guys have
0: a protocol in place that allows for that yet at Munda, do you have Some kind of like uh, process or structure. It sounds like for allowing decisions to be made without
1: always voting on it as a whole. Yeah, we do. So we've, we've got a project system um, and that's evolved a lot over time. So um, right now we do allow people to kind of like uh, just go go for it and do it and then get incentivized retroactively. Um, but there's sort of like uh, there's a sliding scale of who you're protecting within the system. So like, um, are you protecting the builders by guaranteeing their payment up front? Mm-hmm. Um, or are you uh, protecting kind of like the, the DAO at large uh, where you're, you're incentivizing results? Um, so maybe um, builders, they don't know how much they're going to get paid until they actually demonstrate the results, they have the proof of work. Um, and so we're always kind of trying to play with that scale. And it seems like actually it's not just one system that that works for that. Like I think that it's going to be a bunch of different structures that kind of like fill in different niches so uh i think projects work really well where when you have a a dedicated team and it's something that like the entire dao kind of like needs to agree on one implementation for Um, but something that we're moving towards now is a prize model where it's like here is a bounty for like something that that can get done and whoever completes it first wins Hmm. Um, and then we also have like retroactive funding for like here's like like it like go for an idea it doesn't matter what the idea is if you're if you have if you have strong belief in that idea and you just want to do it go ahead and do it and then show us the results and then we'll reward you um based off of that impact so i think it's like there's going to be a few different structures that need to be in place a few kind of like institutions to like make sure that all of those different types of uh, interactions work
0: yeah. So, are you seeing success with retroactive funding? I guess it. it well, while I can see the the promise for it, it seems so counterintuitive from a traditional model of thinking, where it's like if someone wants me to do something for them, I'm usually going to want to know what am I going to get paid if I if I do it well, and the risk of not getting paid is so discouraging towards doing the work. I mean, how is that overcome? Is it do you just is it a cultural thing where you you build up trust within the system that if I do something awesome, I pretty much know I'm going to get funded, or maybe there's a social layer where you kind of can validate it even though it's not voted on on chain yet, but you kind of know people probably will vote for it. I mean, how how does that work?
1: Yeah, um, so we we do we do two things at Mundo. So we we have what's called like a minimum viable payment. So like if you are for sure going to be dedicating some amount of energy and effort towards this project, and you want to be guaranteed by the DAO that you're going to be paid some amount, then that does have to go through governance. It's a little slower. The DAO does have to agree to say, yes, we're, we'll pay some amount. Um, but at the very least you're protected to some amount. And then there's retroactive on top of that. So like, And what I've found in general is that like the skepticism often comes from people that are new to the DAO that are like, Mm -hmm. Oh, what the hell is this? Like, you guys aren't going to pay me. Like, (laughs) no, we are. We we just like have this system to allow for people to just kind of go for ideas, like just go ahead and do it and then show us. So it's like much more open and anyone can get involved. But um, yeah, I think that, it takes some time to develop that trust. So yeah. what I've found is that people that have been inside of the DAO longer kind of tend to go for no MVP. I'm just going to go ahead and do it. And I trust that yeah. this is a valuable concept and I don't need to go yeah. through this cumbersome like governance. Um, but people that are new, it's much easier to go like, here's a project. Here's how much you're going to get paid. And then, you know, if you go above and beyond, here's all this retroactive stuff. So, like, if you have new ideas along the way and you want to work on stuff, you can just add that in and you don't have to go through all this governance stuff. Um, mm. so, so speaking of people, oh, sorry, go ahead.
0: No, no, it's, it's,
1: it's basically, like what I found is like there's no one solution. You can't make everyone happy all the time you just need to kind of offer a bunch of different tools and ways of interacting and yeah. in that, structuring that relationship. Um, like some people are more part-time, some people are more full-time, some people are much more trusting, other people are much more skeptical. Yes. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so, yeah, it's like, I think it's, there's not just one solution that's like magic, boom, that was, yeah. it works, you know? yeah.
0: So a lot of people bring up, speaking of new members, they bring up onboarding as one of the big challenges that, DAOs have faced over the past couple of years. Um, is that a challenge for MoonDAO? Do you have a good solution for that? How, how do you guys think about onboarding?
1: Yeah, so especially in the context of, uh, we're, we're sending a, a new person up to space. So we're doing a new sweepstakes um, in the next couple months. And we want to make it really easy for people to join the DAO. And there are, there are a number of hurdles right now. So first one, is pretty easy as gas fees it's expensive to acquire the tokens we have staking also it's expensive to stake Mm. the tokens. so we're moving a bunch of our stuff over to l2 Mm. that's number one number two if you're new to web3 getting a wallet and understanding like oh this is my wallet this is how i have to fund it this is moving tokens all this stuff that is also really difficult um Mm you're also you're sending people to different links different websites they have to go to metamask download a wallet then they have to open up a coinbase account whatever it's difficult so uh, mm-hmm. now with account abstraction there are all these new solutions where you can generate people like like all you have to do is sign up with an email or phone number you can generate mm-hmm. non custodial wallets for them that's huge it's a massive ui improvement mm-hmm. And then on top of that, with account abstraction, you can pay for people's gas fees. You can batch transactions together. You can make that UI mm-hmm. look a lot more like a Web 2 app than a Web 3 app. Yeah. And it's still non-custodial, so like they 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 still own those funds, and they can you know also move them over to their own MetaMask eventually when they want to. But yeah. uh, all of the transactions, all of that is handled by the user. So I think that all of that together is going to be a massive revolution in sort of Mm. like um, getting new people into the door. Because I think that is the biggest hurdle. It's just like, Mm. it's a super slow process to get people to just like wrap their heads around this technology. And there's no reason they should like, at the end of the day, this stuff should be uh, like guarantees under the hood. but they shouldn't need to know, you know, public private key encryption. <laughs> you know, yeah. like you can't expect, uh, you know, people to, to you know, figure all of that all, uh, all out. Um, yeah. All they should know is that this this app is providing them with some some unique capability that otherwise was not possible beforehand.
0: Yeah, I have a feeling, I guess I kind of hope that this is gonna be a lot like the little lock icon in the browser address bar that at first everyone had to be educated, make sure you see the green lock before you put your credit card. And eventually it's like, make sure you see the green lock any time before you do anything on the web. And now it's just such a given that the browser will just tell you if there isn't that type of connection, but you're assuming that it is, you don't even think about it. It'll probably be similar with crypto. There will be a little green, I don't know what, (laughs) the wallet looking thing. In your browser bar, as long as you see that, you know, you're dealing in a non-custodial way with the product, and then eventually it'll just be a given and the browser will just warn you if it's not, hopefully it'll be that easy. But I'm curious to see if if it will be that easy or if people are going to have to learn more about how cryptography works, for example, in order to use Web3 effectively.
1: Yeah. No, it's it's interesting that you bring the, like up that like we rely on those sort of like signals uh, where someone else is kind of like um, guaranteeing that hey this protocol is safe or that this this transaction is yeah. okay, and um, I think that this ties back to something that we were saying before, which is that like you know traditionally we we rely on some of these like you know national institutions to do that for us. So like when it comes to health decisions, it's the FDA. And uh, they they figure out whether or not something is is ready for the public or not ready. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, the the beautiful thing about you know this sort of open source uh, you know co- contracts are, are out on the web is that it allows for a ton of different organizations to specialize in sort of that like reputation um, mm-hmm. like as a service. So that like um, you know you can develop over time that um, hey Adam. Uh, Adam's Reputation Company, you know, and you, you do yeah. like investigation on protocols and determine whether or not one is trustworthy or not trustworthy, but that's not centralized to just like one government institution. Like you can have one, I can have one. Uh, and then over time, people will learn to trust, you know, which organizations um, are really good at, at figuring out what protocols are safe, which ones aren't. And I think you'll have kind of like this, you um, uh, Lindy effect. So like these protocols that uh, over time uh, are, are tested and become anti-fragile and we'll just learn which ones are kind of like the most reputable.
0: Yeah. Um, I, I I think it's such an interesting point about like um, how licenses today are generally given by the government, whether it's the FDA or your doctor getting a license. Even I was, I was talking to my hairdresser about how she has to get a license from the government to do that and i said what what if there was a world where you know we just trusted the salon wouldn't hire you unless they knew you were a good hairdresser why does the government have to be involved um and i think what's interesting is you know we're so used to that because that's how it works today and there's a good reason for that which is that until crypto until the internet at least there was no other way to do it right there would be no way because a hairdresser could just go town to town like a, like a criminal you know, uh, screwing up people's hair <laughs> and then going to the next town, and no one there would know, because it happened in the other town. But now that we have the Internet and we have cryptographic signatures, you know you, you, we, we would just make the person sign a transaction proving that they are who they say they are, and that they have a million great reviews, and they've never killed anyone with their scissors by accident, or given a bad haircut too many times, and then you're good to go, and you don't need the government to do it. Um, so yeah, I think that is going to be really exciting. Um, let me ask you this. So, um, uh, what are some of the, so you, so you mentioned some of the technical kind of challenges for people uh, joining the DAO blockchain related challenges, right? Wallet, high gas costs, stuff like that. What about more from the human collaboration side? Uh, do you guys use any tools that that you'd recommend people check out or just in general, what are the kind of primary tools that you use for people to collaborate? Is it Discord? Is it Notion? Is there any kind of more modern tool that you think people should check out?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so we use Discord for our um, just like, we use it as a Slack, basically, and then have a bunch of integrations. We use the Discord forums. I highly recommend using those. Mm-hmm. Uh, we used to use Discourse, um, which is like another forum website. But then we found that having it kind of like natively within Discord is a huge uh, user uh, improvement, user experience improvement. Um, We use GatherTown for co-working, and that's actually been a massive um, difference in sort of like the experience of working at a DAO. Because working at DAOs can be pretty isolating. You know, you're like working... Uh, just you, your computer, you like, it's kind of, you know, you don't know who's around, but gather town is this great application. It's like, you're in like a little Pokemon sort of environment and you're walking around and, and everyone has their little desk and it's, it's really fun actually. Um, so we use that a lot. Um, we use coordinate, uh, to do retroactive payments. So, um, each project within Moondao has its own coordinate and that's been pretty effective too. Um, we use just Google Docs, we use a lot of Google Docs just for like, here's mm-hmm. my proposal, leave comments, um, you know, editing proposals, stuff like that. We're thinking about maybe, uh, integrating that into Obsidian. Uh, we started to use Obsidian, which is like a, it's, it's, it's like a way of networking a bunch of documents together and you get a visual representation of all your documents. And hmm. it's, it's a cool, uh, cool app worth checking out too. Um. What else do we use? Um, honestly, yeah, we we try to minimize the number of things that we use, because yeah, uh, we, we don't want a bunch of like. There's so many cool tools out there, but then training everyone to use that tool and to jump on it, and like, and you know, then you know, enforcing like, no, this is the place where that to do yeah. list it's and then no one uses it. It's just, we try to just use like the minimum number of tools,
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've always kind of felt like if there is a good conversation happening somewhere that's not the place it's meant to happen, that's probably more a signal that there's a problem with where it's meant to happen <laughs> or, the, mm-hmm. or the structure. Because if, if people are naturally having these emergent productive conversations somewhere, maybe maybe that's where it should be had or maybe it should be able to happen anywhere. Um, so that's a great, great list of tools.
1: Yeah. Something we've struggled with a lot, honestly, and like, in theory, this is such a great idea, but like, we haven't been able to get anything to stick is like, uh, a, a tool where people just like list the work that they've done or something, you know, and then like mm-hmm. they attach that into like their project. And then people can rate their, you know, you can see their contributions, all that. Like, what we've ended up doing is just, we like, once a week, everyone in the DAO that's, like, worked on something that week, they just post in one channel. And they're, like, here, these are my, like, weekly updates. And we have, like, one meeting a week where the first 10 minutes of that meeting is, like, everyone writes their weekly updates. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and hmm. we found that that has stuck a little bit because you're kind of, like, forced to do it a little bit. Um, but yeah. otherwise, it's so hard to keep track of, like, what people are actually doing and keeping people, mm-hmm. like, I, it, it, not accountable in, like a, like you know forcing people to do work or whatever, but more just like visibility. Like you just mm-hmm. want to know what people are working on and yeah. if someone's bottlenecked on something. Like it's like all of these coordination problems that uh, are a lot easier when you're in an office. You know, mm-hmm. you're just like having yeah. casual chat. Um, yeah, but yeah. So we've kind of town
0: looks. Stuff.
1: Yeah. Sorry, what was that? Like, yeah, we we've tried a bunch of stuff, but it's yeah. It's, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, that's cool. I'm going to check out uh, Obsidian and Gather Town. looks cool, um, even for our tra- traditional company that's not a DAO, but um, looks, looks interesting. Um, we're getting close to the end of our time, so one more question, um, and then we'll turn to some, some uh, closing uh, uh, stuff. Um, what is your number one piece of advice for someone who's starting a DAO today? So they come to you and say, hey, I'm about to start my DAO. Like, what is the number one thing
1: I should do or should avoid doing? Yeah, it's always so hard to give general advice like that because it's just like it varies so much and but I don't want to give an on answer either, so <laughs> <laughs> uh, hmm. I mean, I'd say it shares a lot of similarities with just starting any startup. Um, so a lot of that applies. Um, you want to have a group of individuals that uh, start out that you really trust and you really get along with you really like. Um, because I mean, you're gonna go on it's like going on this like camping trip together, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, things are gonna get it's, it might rain. <laughs> it might be really fun. You might explore, see a bunch of cool stuff, but there's going to be mm-hmm. hard times too. And um, so, you want people that can kind of rough it with you to some degree, mm-hmm. you know. And having that support is really, really critical. So, yeah, um, yeah starting it with people you really enjoy, uh, and just finding a problem that makes you really mm-hmm. uh, excited, you know, something that makes you get up out of bed and makes you happy, and uh, you know, you're like. Wow, this is like I'm I'm doing like like I feel like yeah you really need that intrinsic motivation to some degree because extrinsic yeah. stuff isn't going to be there all the time. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people that like came into is like whoa wow these crypto tokens are blowing up I'm going to yeah. do tomorrow you know. Uh well hey wake up call now most of them are you know worth uh, less than 10% 5% what they were before so um yep. you know I think a lot of people uh, if you're getting involved with those, it? It's, it's a lot easier now than it was before.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Not because, yeah. okay, you before you'd get a lot of interest, but it was fake interest. Mm. If we're being yeah. honest, a lot of it is just, hey, people are speculating on tokens. and um, But now the people that you're getting, yeah. are they know that, hey, the, the market isn't hot right now. This isn't like going to blow up right. tomorrow. But you're going to get people that are really interested in the mission and that's yeah. worth its weight in gold that's much more valuable um and people are much more aligned with what you're doing so it's a good time to get involved um and kind of build up towards that uh, incoming wave uh of like yeah. i think as the barriers come down as onboarding gets easier as we figure out all of this like coordination madness um we're really in the first inning of this technology and i don't yeah. think it's going away and like I think DAOs are really just an extension on the LLC. It's an extension on all of these sort of like uh, things that we've been doing since the dawn of humanity, which is just like working together, collaborating. Right. And a new way of doing it through the internet. So um, yeah. not going away. Um, yeah. hundred yeah.
0: percent. Yeah. And I have to say, because it occurred to me that when moon has a totally different meaning in your DAO from other DAOs. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I'm sure people want both. Um, this has been awesome. Uh, Pablo, where can people find you and Moondao on the web or on social?
1: Um, yeah. So you can find me at uh, Pablo Moncada underscore on Twitter. Um, you can find Moondao, you go to Moondao.com, click uh, join us. And that walks you through everything to make it you know, really easy to get involved. If you're interested in the sort of mission of, of uh, becoming multiplanetary, uh, one of the most exciting uh, missions of our lifetime. Uh, we're mm-hmm. living in like the renaissance of space exploration, and yep. it's such an exciting time um, mm-hmm. for so many different reasons. For you know, Starship, uh, the sort of like uh, renewal of, of space is just incredibly exciting. And I'd be, I, I really need to mention too that we're we're doing another, we're doing a sweepstakes. So we we bought mm-hmm. a Blue Origin seat. Um, we tried to give it away to our community. Um, the person who won was from China. And unfortunately, after repeated attempts, uh, to get them into the United States, uh, we weren't able to. So we tried to get them a visa over a period of a year, multiple times going to the visa office, uh, massive packets, um, And we weren't able to get him, So uh, now we're faced with the situation where, hey, well, we need to give this seat out and we're running another sweepstakes. So actually, it's open to new people, too. So you can join the DAO and get involved and have a chance of going to space. So that's going to be really exciting. Um, We're um, just like if you're joining now, we'll we'll collect your interest and make sure you're the first to know when we launch these NFTs and get involved. And yep. um, yeah, so that's that's really exciting happening in the, the basically the, by the end of the year, we're going to have someone selected in our community go to our space. And it could be you if you're listening <laughs> Um you just have to join Moondao um, tell us you're, you're interested and uh, you'll be the first to know when we launch that.
0: So cool. Come for the space and stay for the technology or stay for the space. Um, very exciting. <laughs> uh, for me, you can find me on Twitter or x at zero x thriller or the thriller on Farcaster. Uh, MyDAO is at mydao.org, M I D A O.org, or myDAO D S for directory services. Um, just a reminder any lawyers in the audience, please reach out. We've got clients for you, we've got prospective clients for you, and also would love to tell you about our legal entities in the Marshall Islands. Um, again, Pablo, this has been really fun. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah, thank you, Adam.
0: Yep. Quick, quick disclaimer. None of this has been or ever is legal advice. We're not lawyers, uh, obviously not financial advice either. And for the audience, are you thinking about starting a DAO? Just DAO it.